Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have. Never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FoxBet. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague and co-host, a man who I know is extremely excited, because once we get this podcast in the books, it'll mean we're exactly halfway done with the NFL preview series, a man who really needs no introduction, we give him one anyways, the one, the only, Payne Insider. How goes it, my man? Getting there, my friend. Each one of these podcasts and each passing day, we inch ever so close to the start of football season, and we can only hope it gets here in earnest. Like you said, though, some unique challenges will face all of us with no preseason. I know we talked a little bit about that on the NFC West edition. Of course, we'll focus on the AFC West. I just want to make sure, Payne, before we start this podcast, that you're going to be limited to how many words of praise you can heap on Patrick Mahomes' shoulders. Are you going to be okay with that kind of rule and regulation? Absolutely. And I think of all the teams we discuss in the AFC West, that probably will be the team that gets the least coverage because you could really just say the Chiefs are going to be good again this season and then just carry on about your business. I mean, it sounds terrible to say when you have the overwhelming division favorite at minus 450. Of course, for those <laughs> folks new to this business, risk $4.50 to make a dollar. And defending Super Bowl champs might be the least intriguing in the West because you kind of know what you're going to get with Andy Reid and company. The Chiefs, of course, massive favorites. Reminds us a lot of the AFC East heyday with Tom Brady and the level of dominance. He basically took over. And when it came to the other three teams, and you see that reflected in the odds here as well, with the Chargers at seven to one, the Broncos at ten to one, the Las Vegas Raiders picking up the rear at twelve to one. So we can start paying with the Denver Broncos if we have seen some money come in on that particular win total, and of course a lot of optimism in the Mile High City for a team that won five straight division titles from 2011 to 2015. They've now gone four straight seasons without a playoff appearance. They've had a losing record in each of the last three seasons where only the Browns, Bengals, and Jets have gone longer in terms of active streaks of futility. And they're trying to end their first streak of three straight losing seasons going all the way back to the 1963 to 1972 drought. 
But the man tasked with bringing this franchise back to glory is the one Drew Locke, who will now be running a Pat Shermer-style West Coast offense. Can Drew Locke be the guy to make Denver relevant? If you exclude tier one young quarterbacks like Mahomes or Lamar or Watson, and you start projecting that next wave, it seems like everyone's infatuated with Kyler for good reason. But the next guy after that, everyone seems to be really bullish on is Drew Locke. The positivity surrounding Locke almost seems better than a Daniel Jones or a Haskins, Sam Darnold. I mean, it seems like, and I'm not talking from betters, but just the national narrative, the media, the analyst, you're also seeing like more praise heaped upon him than Joe Burrow. I have just heard people talking like so glowingly about Locke, and, and I'm not sure he's going to be like the next guy in line. I need to see more, much more. Monster Arm has the size. We know he's athletic. He's been a multi-sport athlete. He showed an ability at, at Missouri his final season there to, to throw on the run, so he's got some mobility. His footwork stinks, and the mechanics aren't great. I think we both have talked about this. As the competition increased, the production seemed to decline at, at the college level. The guys I speak with that aren't overly bullish on Locke immediately reference another Broncos quarterback in Jay Cutler as his comparable. That ain't good. <laughs> to me, the hype is coming from the record down the stretch. Great. Completed 64% of his passes. I get it. Locke leads the Broncos to this 4-1 record in his five starts. Only loss is to the Super Bowl champs on the road in a snowstorm. So you get him, you kind of give him a pass for that. To me, I'm not sure that's the best way to gauge things. And if you remember heading into last season when everyone was bullish on Mitch Trubisky because of the cupcake stats and the record, we, we shut that down by digging deeper into the metrics. And when I looked at Drew Locke, the first things that that came to mind was the defenses that he played in those four wins. They had an average efficiency rank of 27th. Each of those four defenses Locke played against, average rank 26th in defensive pass efficiency. The four defenses finished last year with an average rank of 25th in explosive pass defense. And when you assess how Drew Locke did, good on short to intermediate throws against those bottom barrel defenses... He was above average in a lot of those those short areas, and that could bode well for a new West Coast offense. But when you look at Drew Locke, you know, when he tried to advance the ball down the field into that 11-plus yard range, he was horrific. And that's as nice as I can put it. He graded out the worst passer on 11-plus yard throws. If you look at his accuracy on throws in the 11- to 15-yard window, 13% below an average NFL quarterback. You look at the next window, 16 to 20 yards, 22% below an average quarterback. On deep throws, greater than 20 yards, accuracy was 21% below an average quarterback. Fortunately, whether it was last year's OC or it was luck recognizing how bad the connect rate was, he only threw 7% of his throws deep. That was a positive. People seem to be raving about him throwing for 1,100 yards in four games with ideal conditions, over 53% of his passing yards came after the catch. I think the other reason for optimism, Todd, is what the Broncos organization did this offseason to try to help Locke 
with the added weapons. I think they did a relatively good job there at the receiver position. Yeah, I mean, you have to try and figure out if this Denver Broncos offense can be relevant. I mean, the numbers last year were downright staggering when they finished the season 28th in points per game, averaged less than 200 yards passing. They were 20th in rushing, 30th in third down conversions. Now, we know Pat Shermer replaces Rich Scanganello as offensive coordinator, and the Giants threw the ball on more than 64% of their offensive plays over the last two seasons, the second highest rate in the NFL behind only the Falcons, which, given all the things you just rattled off around Drew Locke, may not have Broncos fans in a new state with legalized betting brimming with confidence. Of course, weaponry, though, they add some depth in the backfield. You go out and you pick up Melvin Gordon from your divisional rival. Gordon, 1,300-plus scrimmage yards in three out of the last four seasons. He's also a viable pass catcher. And you talked about addressing it through the draft. Jerry Judy and K.J. Hamler picked up with early-round selections. Those guys will get paired alongside Cortland Sutton and Noah Fant. Broncos receivers, though, last year, Payne, Bottom five in the NFL in receiving yards and receiving touchdowns with only nine. I mean, are those weapons, do you think, relevant enough from day one to give Locke the tools around him behind an offensive line that I know we'll get to that we have some question marks to begin with? Make no bones about it. I think adding Jerry Judy is a huge positive. He's an elite route runner. You double down with K.J. Hamler. He's the ultimate playmaker at the college level to an offense that already has some young talent. Cortland Sutton, who we like. Noah Fant. I think everything is here for Drew Luck to be successful, even with the difficult position transition. right? I think Jerry Judy is polished enough to contribute early. If Drew Luck doesn't perform well with these weapons, it's room for concern. But there's some other issues that leave me needing more. I need to see more. The schedule of defenses Denver will face, it's going to flirt with top 10 in difficulty. So the schedule is way up in terms of passing defenses. I love Mike Munchak. You mentioned the Broncos offensive line. He's their O-line coach. He made the transition from Pittsburgh. But you look, Drew Locke just lost his his right tackle, the highest paid lineman on the team in Juwan James who opted out. Denver plans on starting a rookie center in a shortened offseason with Lloyd Cushenberry, who was a poor pass blocker at the college level. He's got to replace Connor McGovern. Finished 11th in pass blocking efficiency among all centers last season. I think that's a downgrade. Graham Glasgow is a good guard coming off his best season as a pro, and he just got paid. It wouldn't shock anybody if that combination probably yields some regression. Then there's like these whispers about Garrett Bowles being in the best mental and physical shape he's ever been in, which is a positive. Oh, oh I got to hear about this guy again. Finished 45th in pass blocking efficiency last season among all tackles. He now has 45 penalties in three seasons, the most over in the NFL over that stretch. As a whole, Denver was 27th in pass block win rate last season. Those offensive line issues probably hinder Drew Locke's growth a little bit, but I think what it means for, for Melvin Gordon isn't great, right? Denver makes the guy the seventh highest paid running back in 2020. I think everyone kind of knows I'm not a Melvin Gordon guy, but if you look at defensive adjusted value over average, which means you adjust for the difficulty of the defense, and then based on that, what is the production at? Is it at a rate at, above, or below league average for the position you're measuring? And if you look at 2015, Melvin Gordon's rookie season, 17% worse than an average back. 2016, 8% worse. 2017, 7% worse than an average back. 2018 was his breakout year. He was the third most valuable running back. And he said to himself, you know what? 
I've been in the league four years. I've stunk for three of them. I'm going to hold out <laughs> for more money. <laughs> Smartly, Tom Telesco called Melvin Gordon's bluff. In 2019, Gordon finished 8% worse than an average running back. And now you have him taking snaps away from Philip Lindsay, who was 17% above average as a rookie, above average again last season. Hopefully, there's an efficient kind of split here where Lindsay doesn't lose carries between the 10s. I think Melvin is, is a better goal line guy. You alluded to him as a pass catcher. I think he's probably better there than Lindsay. But when you pay Gordon $8 million, they envision him, I think, to be a bell cow. The final thing I kind of see here with the Broncos offense, Todd, in a shortened offseason with limited camp, no preseason games, Drew Locke is going to learn a new offense. You mentioned the firing of, of Skangarello. They bring in Pat Shermer. They bring in a new QB coach in Mike Shula. I think both are decent in their lessened roles from where they were with the Giants a season ago, but they both were fired. And then, you know, they can potentially focus on helping the quarterback more when they don't have these other obligations. I think as it relates to 2020, there's going to be a growing process here with the new offensive system. I would guess we see an increased rate of passing for Denver, especially in early downs. Again, maybe incorporating those short passes on early downs, something that Locke handled pretty well based upon some of the underlying metrics. But it's still a new system this offseason, it's not going to be an easy transition. Well, if the offense is going to have inevitable growing pains, as we often see with a sophomore quarterback, defensively, you hope there's a little level of continuity there. It was the top-ranked red zone defense in 2019. We were pretty critical of a unit that, at times, would show a little bit of quit uh, in some games, and I think a lot of that had to do with the inability of the quarterbacks before Drew Locke took over to really move the football I mean, the Broncos became the first team since sacks became an official statistic way back in 1982 to go three straight games without a sack or a takeaway during the month of September. Now, Von Miller, of course, will get his running mate back in the form of Bradley Chubb. We talked about it in the offseason podcast about them adding Jarrell Casey to the defensive line, a pro bowler in each of the last five seasons with the Titans. When you look at this secondary, new faces but uh, a group that I think can overachieve or maybe achieve to some lofty level of expectations without their perceived star in Chris Harris. What do you make of this Denver defense, and where should we be thinking they ultimately slot uh, amongst the pantheon of best defenses in the NFL, knowing you have a defensive-minded head coach who's now had a year to kind of mold this talent into what he's looking for? Bottom line, the defense has to be better or it puts increased pressure on Drew Locke in the offense. And I do think Vic Fangio is a fantastic defensive mind, one of the best, but we'll see. Not everyone is a chief. It's okay to be a great Indian. It's now year two, but we've seen Denver's defense with Vic trying to be more than just a defensive guy dip 10 spots in efficiency his first season. I can tell you there won't be much of a break as it pertains to the schedule. We're projecting the Broncos to face a top five schedule of offenses, a top five schedule of passing offenses. The hope is the familiarity in the system helps. Injury regression takes some place. And, you know, I think the hope is those two factors kind of spearhead the improvement. The Broncos defensive line could make some strides, not just with the addition of Jarrell Casey, who is really tasked with replacing Derek Wolf, but Bradley Chubb only played four games last season. Von Miller had a down year for him. So getting those guys in the mix and getting some of those guys back, I think is vital. Denver finished 30th in pass rush win rate, below average in pressure rate. So that's the reason those... Uh, meager sack stats you mentioned at the top 
came to fruition. Jarrell Casey certainly, I think, has enough left in the tank, but we are looking at back-to-back seasons of pressure rate per pass rush snap decline. Derek Wolf was a beast, so it's not like we're just adding Jarrell Casey into a fold of a defensive line that didn't lose anybody. He's really there to replace somebody. I don't know if he's going to outperform Derek Wolf. We'll see. You mentioned the back half of the secondary potentially getting better. We know they went out, acquired A.J. Bouye. We've talked about him before. Elite seasons from 2016 to 2018. Then just kind of decided to pack it in last season. The The effort on film wasn't great for him. I know he wanted out of Jacksonville bad. He got his wish. Now go back to work. We also know the importance of getting Bryce Callahan back, who missed the entire season to injury. In 2018, Callahan was in Chicago with Vic Fangio, was the number one NFL slot corner, allowed 0.69 yards per slot coverage snap. Vic Fangio thought so much of him, he brought him to Denver, but again, he missed the entire 2019 season. And when you look at Fangio's defense, you can see why Bryce Callahan in the slot is so important because Fangio played nickel defense 65% of the snaps, so five defensive backs on the field is what that means. The slot corner in Fangio's system is important. So you're also hoping the secondary that was, you know, the fifth most injured is healthier. You hope that Vic can dial up more man coverage with better talent on the field. Because if you look at EPA per dropback, Denver secondary ranked eighth when being able to play man, dipped to league average when in zone. You could tell Fangio's out there trying to keep things in front and cover for less talented guys. So hopefully that talent uptick with Bouye and Callahan really allow him to... uh, play more nickel, play more man. I also think, Todd, that there will be a greater familiarity there with what Vic has on his roster now. Knowing guys, knowing their capabilities, because we saw a move in week five last year where Vic kind of planted Alexander Johnson into the starting lineup at linebacker. From that point on, the Broncos were fourth in EPA per rush allowed. Alexander finished 13th in tackling efficiency on run plays among qualifying linebackers sometimes just having a better feel of your own guys and what they can do leads to some improvements. And that was the case with Alexander moving him into the starting linebacker role last year. And it really helped the improvement in their run defense. I mean, before we move on from the Denver Broncos, I mean, Vic Fangio only in his second year, Drew Locke in his second year as well. Are there being unrealistic expectations heaped on both of those guys' shoulders that suddenly Denver should make this massive jump to being a nine-win football team and competing for one of the seven playoff spots in the AFC? I think so, right? Because perception, a lot of it is driven because of the quarterback position. And we touched at the top what I think analysts, media, what the national narrative is about the Denver Broncos. My God finished the season four and one only loss was to the Super Bowl champs so it provides optimism to start next season and I think when you just look at the number it paints the picture right you're looking at eight minus 30 under or seven and a half some places on their win total this is an average or below average team according to the odds makers that reality doesn't necessarily mesh with projections from from the national media Always crazy to see which teams the public sentiment starts to gravitate towards during the offseason for a lot of the reasons you outlined, mentioning the fact that you finish strong, albeit against inferior opponents, and suddenly you're supposed to take that next step. So a team that we don't think can take a next step because the ceiling is the floor for the Kansas City Chiefs, or I'll butcher MJ's quote. The ceiling is the floor. 
I gotta think about. I think that. that's what it was when he said the ceiling is the roof or the floor. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> biggest favorite. So biggest you butchered favorite. a butchered quote. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, you want to be a butcher, you take it one step further. And there's a reason Kansas City is the biggest favorite to win its division of any team in the National Football League this season uh, ahead of the Ravens. And to put in perspective, Kansas City at minus 450. The Ravens are at minus 190. It's why their win total sits at 11.5, shaded to the over. And Kansas City will return 20 of 22 starters, four straight AFC West titles, five straight playoff appearances. Four of the last six defending Super Bowl champions have actually gone on to win their division. And Payne, I found these numbers staggering because I don't think he gets enough credit for what he's meant as head coach but Andy Reid since becoming the chief in Kansas City 77 and 35 a win percentage just below 70 percent only the Patriots have a better record of 86 and 26 in that span and they've gone 27 and 3 against the division over the last five seasons an average margin of victory of 13 and a half points but with the Kansas City Chiefs it's all about Patrick Mahomes and rather than rattle off a laundry list of his tremendous accomplishments for a man who's poised to make over 500 million dollars in the next 10 years i'm gonna let you compliment him maybe even write his induction speech into canton as we preview kansas city (laughs) the part that you mentioned there was andy reed we all knew how great of a coach he was i'm just happy that he now is a super bowl to solidify that to the media and the one thing that we introduced a few months ago in a theme that was called smart continuity that's vital in an offseason with uncertainty. It's so important. You know, in an offseason like this where we're trying to navigate it, having an elite coach, an elite quarterback, the entire coaching staff returning, that's a huge advantage. Weapons basically all return. The Chiefs did have 11 offensive starters back, but recently we know Damian Williams opted out, Tardif, the guard, both opted out not ideal you had then a depth guy and rookie Lucas Niang opt out as well but the one guy that we don't ever see on the field who's vital to the Chiefs and we've been raving about is their GM Brett Veach goes out and adds depth in Mike Remmers he's an above average player he was an above average player at tackle hearing through the grapevine of what these practices have been looking like the last few days they're probably going to kick him inside to guard then Veach goes out and adds Osemele at guard as well. He just turned 31, so he's leaking out of his prime back-to-back down seasons because of injury. But Osemele was an elite guard from 2014 to 2017. If the Chiefs can get him to produce anywhere near at that level, now that he's healthy, that could be massive. But the scariest part, you know, when I went to go evaluate the Chiefs, Todd, is their potential because it's scary to say this, but they may go out and exceed what they did last season. You see an offense that adds around one weapon in Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, extremely versatile. Veach looks brilliant again, right? Because Damian Williams opts out. At LSU, Joe Brady had Clyde Edwards-Hilaire run 20% of his routes as a receiver. So he's not just a running back. He's not a guy that just catches screens and dump offs, which we know Andy Reid loves to dial up. But he's versatile enough to line up at receiver. Miko Hardman hasn't even scratched the surface. And I think he takes a year two leap, especially if there's more opportunities there. But the biggest thing when evaluating this offense a little bit, and you go back to last season, let's not forget weeks five through 11, 
Mahomes either missed games or was far from 100% playing through the dislocated kneecap and the high ankle sprain or a combination of both simultaneously. From the Colts game through the Monday nighter against the Chargers in Mexico, the Chiefs played without Mahomes or a version of Mahomes that wasn't his, you know, Superman-like self. 44% of the Chiefs' regular season sample size, their starting quarterback, Mr. wasn't 100%. You also had Tyreek Hill miss four games. But over that seven-game stretch from week five through 11, the Chiefs' offense, 11th in both rushing success rate and passing success rate, well above average, but wasn't elite. And then when you look at the full season metrics in totality, the Chiefs' offense was third in efficiency. So it's scary, but it tells me there's room for improvement. You look at the schedule of defenses. We're projecting the Chiefs to face this season. It lightens up in some areas, and overall, it's a below-average schedule of defenses. When we deep dive these teams in the offseason and we're trying to find like everything we can anywhere we can, teams like the Chiefs are a pain in the dick, right? Like you end up doing more work with fewer results because you dig, you dig, and you don't find much. So you think you're missing something and then you dig even more. And then in the end, as I kind of joked about, you simply can say, hey, they're just really good and they're going to be good again. Past the talent in the continuity, in the scheme, and the play calling, all of that stuff is beyond what anyone else is doing. And the Chiefs are just smarter. They throw more on first down than anybody. But you say to yourself, like, oh, that makes sense. You have Mahomes. But they're smart enough to know an area where you need a solid ground game in 2020, short yardage situations, and in the red zone. So Kansas City transforms into a run-heavy team in the red zone as the space shrinks and pass defenses have less space to defend in smaller areas. So it's not just like, oh, we're going to pass more because we got Mahomes. Everything they do is just simply smarter. So do they have the talent? Yes, but they put that talent in great position to succeed, Todd. So you're pretty much telling me Kansas City Chiefs are going to be a forgotten team as we go through the season because there's not going to be ample opportunity to bet against them. And I lost enough money betting against Tom Brady for all those years in New England. I'm not sure I want to establish that same precedent with Patrick Mahomes winning division after division after division as the head man in Kansas City. So when we look at this Chiefs I'm not going to cheat. Let's cheat a little bit. We actually don't make the Chiefs the highest power rated team. Wow, look at that. Look at that. I didn't want sure you guys were going to divulge we'll, some of that we'll, information we'll, out we'll there. Wait, we'll wait for the North. I wasn't sure if that information was going to be made public. So when you look at this team defensively uh, from a red zone scoring defense, they actually ranked third in the league last year. We know how lousy they were against the run. But I think in the modern day NFL, it goes to show if you can bring pressure uh, against the opposing passer, it forces your opponent to be extremely patient. And it's not easily done against Kansas City. Honey Badger, of course, made all the difference in the secondary. Frank Clark helped add some grit and swagger. You go out there, you give Chris Jones four years, $60 million, the potential to earn up to $85 million. The only big loss, at least for me, Payne, that I see is on the back end in Kendall Fuller. Uh, but maybe I'm missing something. What do you make of this Kansas City stop unit in 2020? So first of all, not to just continue to heap praise on Andy Reid, but last offseason, he rolls the dice, and it comes up a seven. He fired his buddy his longtime defensive coordinator, Bob Sutton, then hire Steve Spagnola, who was out of football. And you're like, huh, this is interesting. But it paid dividends. In the simplest form, Chiefs went from 26th in defensive efficiency with Sutton, 14th with Spags in year one. So from, from very bad to above average. But the area we kept 
pinpointing, Todd, was how good the secondary was, how they added speed. We saw the Chiefs. They finished sixth in defensive pass efficiency. When you try to project ahead for 2020, you would think there's still a little more meat on the bone. There's some room to improve. We know it takes some time, right, to learn this new system. And that was evident in the numbers. You look at Spags last season, weeks one through six, the Chiefs defense was dead last in rushing success rate allowed, 23rd in passing success rate. The Chiefs were allowing 60% of their opponent runs to great successful, 48% of opponent passes. But you look from week seven through the Super Bowl run, the Chiefs only allowed 49% of runs to great successful and 11% improvement. Even bigger, though, from week seven through the Super Bowl, the Chiefs were fourth in passing success rate defense, 4% better than league average. So maybe you're saying year two in the system, a little more familiarity, maybe even another leap. You look at some of the small things that can really add up as well. Chiefs defense, ninth most injured. Kansas City's defense finished 29th in fumble luck. And then the schedule of offenses the Chiefs defense is projected to face in 2020, bottom 10 Last season, it was the sixth toughest schedule of opposing offenses. So again, we're looking at potentially some room for improvement. Now, the lone caveat here, Todd, the toughest part of the Chiefs schedule is from weeks two through seven. They're going to face opponents that have an average wins faced of 8.7, okay? And it looks like Bashad Breeland will likely be suspended the first four games. Juan Thornhill is not going to be rushed back from his December knee injury. You listen to both Andy Reid, Tyron Matthew, both have like been animated and have come out and said, hey, we're not rushing this guy back. The biggest loss in free agency, you mentioned this offseason for the Chiefs, was, was Kendall Fuller. Very versatile. Could play slot corner, could play free safety. Spags was using that versatility to move him around last year. The defensive line is interesting. That's an area where you need to see improvement from a pass rush standpoint. They were 20th in pressure rate, 19th in pass rush win rate. You'll lose Emmanuel Ogba. He led the Chiefs in pressure rate, oddly. You know, we know Chris Jones only started 12 games. You get Alex Okafor back, only played nine games. Breland Speaks apparently wants to say like, hey, I'm going to be a contributor this year, guys. If you look at his body transformation, my God. It has been ridiculous. So he's trying to be a factor for the defensive line. Veach goes out and signs Taco Charlatan. This is low risk, high reward, had five sacks and five starts for the Dolphins last season. I'm intrigued to see what the second round pick Willie Gay brings to the table. Much needed athleticism to the linebacker unit. I know Spagnola had to cover last season for that linebacker unit. Tried to play as as minimal linebackers on the field as possible. We even see him smartly converted Daniel Sorensen, the backup safety, to linebacker because that unit was just void of talent. So possible that we see the Chiefs defense start a little slower this season like last year, Todd, but could improve down the stretch as guys again get more familiar with the system and key cogs return. Scary to think about what Kansas City is building there. Not only if the offense continues to hum on all cylinders, but if the defense makes strides like we saw last season, it'll be interesting, like you mentioned, to see how they perform early on in the campaign, knowing that some of their most daunting scheduling spots happen to occur that aforementioned weeks two to week seven. The Las Vegas Raiders, an interesting team to discuss. We look at their win total, seven and a half, shaded to the over long shots to win this particular division. The last AFC West title came way back in 2002. They've compiled a losing record in 14 of the last 17 seasons. And a year ago, they lost five of their final six games after starting the year six and four, being outscored down the stretch, 169 to 88. 
Two and six record on the highway, worst point differential of minus 90, and second worst turnover differential of minus six when they left their home. For the first five games this season, Payne had come against 2019 playoff teams in the form of the Saints, Patriots, Bills, and Chiefs. Obviously an asterisk by the Patriots. Schedule opens up considerably after that stretch. If the Raiders are going to continue to progress and have a honeymoon, so to speak, in their first year in Las Vegas, uh, I think it starts with the quarterback-head coach relationship, Derek Carr and John Gruden. I mean, this was an offense ranked top 10 in the NFL in passing yards per play, sacks allowed, giveaways, and third down last season. They gained the 11th most yards per game in the NFL at 363 a contest, but they ultimately didn't convert that to points where they were 24th in the league. I guess that's a long-winded way of me asking, is Derek Carr capable of being the franchise quarterback that John Gruden needs to leave the silver and black? That's going to be the interesting relationship to monitor throughout the course of the season because we know they brought in Marcus Mariota. And where some of the issues lie is Derek Carr's aggressiveness. Only Devlin Hodges was a less aggressive quarterback out of 39 qualifiers according to player tracking data. Carr threw deep on just 9% of his passes. And and again, that is where the contention between Gruden and Carr lies. Gruden wants a an offense that airs it out. Gruden has openly, but nicely, called Carr out in the press saying things like, you know, we're trying to be more aggressive. We want a more aggressive offense, hoping that Carr would, would get the hint. And then there was this elaborate quote from last year where Gruden said, if your receivers are better, the more aggressive you can be. If your line is better, the more vertical shots you can take. We think we're better outside. We think we're better on the line. We're going to take more shots, I hope. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, that didn't appear to happen based on Carr's aggressiveness and his deep passing rate. And I know it's frustrating, Gruden, and probably some Raiders fans, because, you know, you would like to see Carr take these shots. The guy is really accurate. Seventh in completion percentage above expectation you want him to air it out where Carr's done a good job he's been great avoiding the negative plays he takes care of the ball the accuracy is there the arm strength we know is there it's on Gruden to bring it out of him I don't think it's the system either especially with these these Gruden quotes that that you can find pretty regularly the last two years and when you look at the play calling in these third and short situations Gruden takes this uber-aggressive approach. If you look at the Raiders on third and short, they threw the ball, on average, eight yards past the stick. That's excessive air yardage, nearly three and a half more yards than league average. We're seeing the actual play calling be aggressive in certain areas where you don't think it would. We're patiently, I think, waiting on Derek Carr to take that next step from slightly above average, I would say, to, you know, becoming a franchise quarterback. I'm not sure he's there. He, I would classify him right now, Todd, as an elite game manager. That's kind of where I would put him at. Do you think he's got a short leash knowing that they brought in Marcus Mariota, albeit at some pretty favorable financial terms? Could get to that point, but the first thing that we have heard and seen out of Derek Carr is an accountability factor. He says he needs to be better. He says he's spent the offseason improving dramatically and he wants to get back to being an MVP candidate. He knows the pressure's on. He hears all the whispers around him. He's poised for a little bit of a bounce back season. And certainly when you bring in Marcus Mariota, that's probably all the motivation you need. 
Yeah, I think everybody kind of needs that spark and the kick in the pants sometimes, knowing that you have somebody breathing down your neck for that starting job competition. You'd hope brings out the best in a guy that you want to be your linchpin. Now, fortunately for Carr, he will have a fortress in front of him, and I don't think this Raiders offensive line pain gets enough credit in casual circles. Obviously, we can appreciate it. When you look at the healthy additions of Trent Brown and Richie Incognito, it really paid dividends. Incognito allowed just nine pressures on 414 pass blocking snaps all season. Good for a pressure rate allowed of a shade more than 2%. We saw Colton Miller show improvement at left tackle. And when you look at Rodney Hudson, I mean, a guy that consistently rates as one of the top 10 interior linemen, is this Raiders offensive line truly the strength of this football team? I think it certainly can help. But I just think when you look at the entire landscape of this offense, one thing casual fans don't believe but is true. And we have been as critical of Gruden as just about anyone. But in totality, this guy can still run an offense. We hammered this point home last year. We know the time he spends devising these game plans. The guy is all in. We've made it a point now that we want Gruden handling offense and doing nothing else in the organization. We don't want him constructing rosters, none of that, just be an offensive coach. And that's the way I think the Gruden Raiders relationship is best served for success what is a 10-year contract or so over the next whatever eight more years we've made our feelings known about this the second he was hired last year we saw with that mindset there was a lot of execution there was a lot of good from this Raiders offense they took a massive leap went from 25th to 9th in efficiency year over year finished sixth in total success rate Gruden put the offense in good positions to succeed we talk all the time about coaches constantly calling predictable first down runs or the second and long runs Gruden's offense actually faced the shortest average yards to go on third down in the league at 6.2 yards NFL average 7.3 so Gruden was putting his guys in position to succeed you know in 2020 the task gets a little bit harder the Raiders faced the 24th toughest schedule of defenses last season We're projecting that increases substantially it's going to be a top eight schedule of defenses and a top five schedule of passing defenses and a top five schedule of red zone defenses. This is one of the largest schedule increases for a unit in 2020. So it's going to be on car, but I think there are a few positives and it, 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 some of that is the offensive line. We keep hammering home continuity. The entire starting line returns Colton Miller in year three, you alluded to making big strides last year. We know what we're getting from incognito and Rodney Hudson Both Gabe Jackson and Trent Brown had down seasons on the right side. Both can easily increase production. It's important that Josh Jacobs continues his output, and maybe he even gets better in year two. He's got to be a monster because the schedule of rushing defenses we're projecting the Raiders to face is close to bottom five. So maybe, you know, Gruden sees this. Maybe we go to a little bit more of a ground game. Jacobs' rookie season, he was awesome. One of the most elusive running backs in the NFL that had 100 or more carries. Finished seventh in explosive runs, ninth in yards after contact, an absolute workhorse. The receiver group for Derek Carr is interesting. I'm higher, I think, on Tyrell Williams than most five touchdowns in the first five weeks last year before battling all these foot injuries. If you look in terms of yards above replacement adjusted for defense, Williams was third in the NFL. Hunter Renfro, someone that we have been pounding the table to play more. He isn't impressive getting off the bus, right? The athleticism, his his attributes aren't the best. 
but the production can't be argued with. Last season, he had the third most separation of any receiver in the NFL, three and a half yards per route run. In terms of yards per route run, Renfro was 11th in the NFL among receivers with at least 65 targets. The only guys ahead of him, Todd, you may have heard of some of these guys, Michael Thomas, Diggs, Tyreek Julio, Mike Evans, Amari, Godwin, Gallup, A.J. Brown, and Devontae Adams. That was it. Then you have Mike Mayock go out, draft Henry Ruggs with the 12th pick. Really interesting receiver group. You get the gadget guy in Lynn Bowden in round three. And the player that is, and I want to preface it this way, the player that's making a lot of noise is apparently Brian Edwards, the rookie out of South Carolina. This could be a massive smokescreen from the Raiders. And I think we're going to see a lot of smokescreens from teams because of this offseason and you not being able to see what they want to do in preseason games. But I was listening to this presser from the Raiders OC, and he suggests, or at least suggested, that they've been so impressed with Brian Edwards that he surpassed Hunter Renfro and could play the X spot, which would put him ahead of both Tyrell Williams and Ruggs in two receiver sets. That just doesn't feel right. But he indicated that they actually want to play Ruggs in the slot. I need to see this to believe it. And unfortunately, again, we don't have a preseason. But the point is, I think the weapons are pretty robust here. We haven't even mentioned the freak that is Darren Waller, 115 targets a season ago, third most among tight ends. Carr had a 110 passer rating when targeting Waller. So the weapons are there, Todd. It'll just be interesting to see if if Gruden can get all these guys to mesh. And, And as I alluded to, the schedule of defenses does increase substantially this season. Well, if the weapons are there offensively for this team, Payne, I think there are a bevy of question marks on the defensive side of the ball. For a team that finished with the third worst red zone defense in the NFL last season, they mustered just 32 sacks. And when you look at this defense, it's extremely young. I mean, from a a boatload of guys in their second year, whether it's Cleveland Farrell, Max Crosby, who I think still probably becomes their lone bona fide pass rusher that can be trusted Trevon Mullen who some have described as a strider and a grabber so to speak and then of course Jonathan Abraham who played all of one game a season ago you go out in the draft you add Damon Arnett one of the more controversial first round picks I guess for lack of a better term and Amik Robertson Uh, and then all the veterans Malik Collins Corey Littleton who we mentioned last week talking about the Rams and how they were going to feel his absence Prince Amakamara Jeff Heath Demarius Randall, on and on and on. Can this Raiders defense be better in 2020? The Raiders spent the sixth most on free agents this offseason, and to the laundry list of guys you just named off, a vast majority of that money spent was on defense. You're going from a defense that in 2019 was the second cheapest. They're now the 14th most expensive after that spending spree. The signing we like best and a guy we outlined during the free agency podcast in March and we discussed on the NFC West podcast last week is Corey Littleton. Very good cover linebacker, a sure tackler, finished top 20 in yards allowed per route run among linebackers with at least 400 coverage snaps, was far and away the most efficient tackling linebacker in 2019. Huge get for the Raiders, right? Because you look at them, bottom 10 in yards allowed to both running backs and tight ends. Bottom 10 in touchdowns allowed to both running backs and tight ends. So that was a position of need. They double down. They get Nick Kwiatkowski, who they signed at linebacker from Chicago as well. He was better in run support than any linebacker on Oakland's roster last year. Carl Nassib to help with their pass rush. He's a motor guy. It doesn't stop. I think it's probably an overpay, but a solid player, even better locker room guy. When you're 27th in pressure rate, you tend to 
probably reach a little bit in free agency. Malik Collins coming off his best season as a pro. Not great stopping the run, but 12th in total pressures from the interior line position last season. The secondary is a it's a mixed bag. That's where I think most of the questions lie with the Raiders. Defense finished 30th in defensive pass efficiency. It was 29th in explosive pass defense in 2019. That was against an average schedule of pass offenses. Remember this, 38% of the quarterbacks the Raiders faced last season weren't the week one starters. Trayvon Mullen, who you described interestingly as a strider and a grabber, hopefully nobody has uh, mentioned you as the latter. I think he performed no, pretty good. well. Clean reputation, squeaky clean, baby, squeaky clean. <laughs> I, I think Mullen, you know, did well as a rookie, could make that year two leap. Mayock brings in Prince of Mookamore. He's an average cornerback. I think you know what you're getting from him. Round one, as you alluded to, Mayock and, and Nolan Naraki go a little off the beaten path there with Damon Arnett. They double down round four with Amik Robertson. The safety position has potential. Jonathan Abram only played one game last season. So you effectively have two first-round picks, hopefully contributing 2020. Damaris Randall, back-to-back solid seasons. He's improved in coverage, really worked on his tackling last season, showed an ability to get after the quarterback if you want to send him on a blitz. And the forgotten man seems to be LaMarcus Joyner. I'm not sure what you get out of him. The Raiders seem oddly bound and determined to play him as their slot corner, but he's a safety. That that won't end well. Yeah, you know, the Raiders sign him to this like four-year, $42 million deal, and then they say, hey, we're going to play him out of position, and he has his worst season as a pro ever, and they, you know, you got to get that figured out. In the end, you know, we have to see defensive improvement. Big draft capital has been spent on, you know, three first-round defensive players in back-to-back drafts. The big money spent this offseason, there is a positive, and it's the schedule of opposing offenses. Projected to be bottom 10 in the NFL, so maybe we see some improvement. It's just vital. I think the Raiders have to tread water early. That's the key. Weeks two through nine, their opponents' average wins faced nearly nine and a half. They get a bye week in there, week six, to kind of split that sector up. But treading water is important early. And that's potentially what scares me is hopefully Gruden doesn't have a quick trigger on Derek Carr because he should know that early schedule is is very difficult. I don't want to see him making rash decisions and going to Mariota because I think we kind of know what he is at this point. Yeah, I mean, I still think Carr has a little more upside than he's even realized to this point in his career. But you mentioned Marcus Mariota, more of a placeholder than anything else. And I don't think he's a guy that has a very high ceiling, but ultimately it'll be Gruden's decision. And we know he's fallen in love with players in the past, oftentimes to his own detriment. So I'm very curious to see how this Raiders offense performs in new surroundings. And last but not least in this division, Payne, a team that I don't think it's enough national coverage, who I think is rather fascinating for a variety of reasons, that being the Los Angeles Chargers. And when you look at this Chargers team, their win total set at eight. We know that their secondary favorites behind the Chiefs, albeit a long shot away at seven to one to win the division. And this is a franchise that's missed the playoffs in five out of the last six seasons. But one of the biggest things that we saw from the Chargers a season ago was the firing of Ken Wisenhunt and Shane Steichen taking over. The offense ultimately finished the year ranked top 10 in in the NFL in yards per game, yards per play, passing yards, and third downs. 
Phillip Rivers will no longer be the starting quarterback. He ends a streak of 224 consecutive games leading this offense. It's now Tyrod Taylor's job. The level of familiarity he brings to the table, having worked with Anthony Lynn way back in 2015 in Buffalo, where they had one of the more explosive run offenses. Can this relationship work, and can Tyrod Taylor be the one to lead the offense, at least for now, to keep the seat warm until they ultimately turn the baton over to Justin Herbert? I think so. A lot of people are going to make this feel or discuss it as being a new offense. But I think there's some continuity here. I think there's familiarity between the trio of Tyrod and OC Shane Steichen and and head coach Anthony Lynn. They all spent last season together. Shane was promoted to OC the final eight games after Ken Wisenhunt was fired. So we've seen him run the show. Anthony Lynn was in Buffalo with Tyrod for two seasons in 2015 and 16. So there is some familiarity there. But despite that, you know, familiarity, I think we're going to see something completely different from the Chargers offense. You know, the style is probably going to change. The passing rate decreases would be my guess. The pace could increase a touch. We're going to see much needed positive turnover regression here. When it comes to the style and the passing rate, you look at the Chargers, 67% 67% pass the first eight weeks last season with Wisenhunt. 60% the final eight weeks with Steichen. You look at Wisenhunt, the Chargers were successful on 38% of their runs dead last in the NFL. With Steichen, the Chargers were second in rushing success rate from week nine at 55%. Sure, I think when you look at the schedule, it got a little bit easier in terms of run defenses. But I think when you look at Steichen, he was doing things formationally that you know, far exceeded what Wisenhunt was doing. You couple that rushing success with the fact that Tyrod Taylor was, you know, a starter in Buffalo for three seasons, and the Bills had the highest run rate each and every single year. So I think the Chargers are, are you know, transitioning here. It's going to be a run-first team that relies on its defense. That approach probably is assisted a little bit more when you look at what they brought in with the offensive line. They spend money on Trey Turner, you know, making that trade. They signed Brian Balaga at tackle, who finished seventh in run blocking efficiency last season. Top that off, and you look, the Chargers are projected to face a bottom six schedule of run defenses. If you're going to start Tyrod, I think you have to let him be mobile and use his legs, not just on the ground. You want to get him moving rollouts, you know, use play action, just get the feet moving. In 2015, we saw Tyrod was, when he was able to use play action, passer rating was 120. Yards per attempt up three and a half yards more than non-play action passes. 2016, his completion percentage of play action, 6% better than his passer rating. Without 2017, you look, Tyrod Taylor, 18 points better in passer rating. Yards per pass attempt up two and a half yards with play action. We're going to see an offense, I think, that uses Tyrod's legs, which are his best attribute. The other thing is because he has the mobility factor, we're going to see a little bit of a difference with when pressure does come there's not going to be that panic you look at those three seasons as a starter in buffalo from 2015 to 2017 tyrod finished fifth seventh and sixth in passer rating when under pressure this could piss bills fans off if they're still listening but when you look at (laughs) metrics like epa per play or scoring drive percentage and yards per play buffalo's offense was more successful with tyrod in that three-year window than it's been with Josh Allen for the last two years. Pace, 
probably ticks up a little bit. But the goal for the Chargers offense, I think, is to cut back on mistakes, obviously, and then rely on Gus Bradley's defense. But I could see a situation where the Chargers offensive pace increases. We saw it tick up incrementally with Steichen when he took over in week nine. Chargers go from the slowest paced team under Wisenhunt the first three quarters of games, the first eight weeks, to 25th. So it was. That may be Buffalo Bills fans on the phone. I should maybe answer it and see if they're angry about this particular analysis and what they're missing out on not having Tyrod there. The bat line. (laughs) You look in 2016, the final year in Buffalo of Anthony Lynn, Tyrod Taylor. Bills were 15th in pace for the first three quarters of games. We're going to see more run heavy. We're going to see a little bit more tempo. Really the reason why we're seeing the Chargers, as you alluded to, being the second favorite in the division, their stock arrow is pointing up because there's going to be positive turnover regression. It's quite easy to project this as well with Tyrod Taylor under center. You're going to have positive injury luck. Chargers had the fourth most injured offense. But you look at the turnovers. When Tyrod's attempted 380 or more passes in a season, he's never exceeded a 1.6% interception rate. Chargers had the worst fumble luck last season, minus 17 as well in turnover differential. The three seasons in Buffalo with Tyrod under center, the Bills were a plus seven average in turnover differential. So I think turnovers are really the reason the Chargers were two and nine in one score games. When you look at what Shane Steichen did for this Chargers offense in his eight games as OC and play caller to finish the season, the Chargers were fantastic on early downs actually won that early down battle all eight games but they go two and six in them because of a minus 14 turnover differential so when you add everything up you tack on the fact that the chargers offense is projected to face a bottom 10 schedule of opposing defenses melvin gordon is gone and his efficiency was horrific good riddance and then you factor in what tyrod did won 23 games in three seasons in buffalo with a poor bills defense which was interesting for me to find out Poor Bills defense with Tyrod at quarterback. They finished with an average defensive efficiency rank over his three seasons of 22nd. And I think now you are going to have a Chargers defense significantly better than that three-year average that he was playing with in Buffalo. Well, you mentioned the Chargers defense, and this is a unit that should be a lot better than what we saw for extended stretches last year. Now, I know they finished sixth in total defense only allowing uh, 313 yards per game. Uh, But the problem for them is they just couldn't get off the field on third down. They couldn't force turnovers. And maybe some of that gets better knowing that Derwin James will come back and should be healthy. You expect him to be on the field for nearly 100% of the defensive snaps, pairing him alongside Chris Harris, which I think gives this team some flexibility in regards to a role they'll find for Desmond King. And 12 games last year, they allowed fewer than 25 points. But again, Payne, When you look at this Chargers defense, can they get better in those two areas, forcing turnovers and getting off the field on third down? Because as we know, those oftentimes are the two biggest indicators of success in the modern NFL. I think so. The talent is plentiful. We expect the Chargers to revert back a little bit to that 2018 form where they finished top 10 in defensive efficiency. They got just five games out of Derwin James in 2019. Totality. Chargers defense had more injuries than league average. You move back into the first round, you get a freak athlete like Kenneth Murray. Hopefully, Gus Bradley puts him in positions to succeed early. Allow Murray to play downhill, think as little as possible. Some coverage questions. So, hopefully, you just allow him to play fast. Don't have him be forced to use all his his instincts early on. You sign Chris Harris, as you mentioned. We've raved about him for as long as we've had a podcast. If you're putting together an all decade defense Chris Harris is on it last year he was asked to play out of position because the Broncos secondary had a you know a few key injuries 
and it was his worst season as a pro, yet he was 11th out of all cornerbacks in the NFL in yards per route run allowed. That was his worst season as a pro. That's how good the guy is. The other monster signing in free agency that probably not a lot we'll talk about is the interior lineman, Linvel Joseph. The Chargers Massive. have finished. Yeah, huge. Huge addition. Chargers, you look, 25th in defensive rush efficiency two of the last three seasons. They have been dying for a big man to control the line of scrimmage on the interior. Of all interior linemen in 2019 that were on the field for 200 run snaps or more, Linval Joseph finished top 25 in run stop percentage. He also had more pressures last season than any returning interior lineman for the Chargers. On paper, really the only area this defense could use help and it requires probably a player or two to step up in 2020 is the defensive line depth jerry tillery had a horrific rookie season graded out an above average player in just two of his 15 games behind really the big two pass rushers in bose and ingram you need more uchenna nawaso as a pure finesse pass rusher needs to take that next step isaac rochelle was an absolute zero in terms of pressure, 119th and edge rushers in a metric called PRP, which combines your pressures, hits, hurries relative to your pass rush snaps. Between Tillery, Rochelle, and Nuasu, those three have to step up. And aside from the additions to the defense, Todd, I think a real positive on the side of the ball, again, is the schedule of offenses the Chargers are going to be projected to face bottom five in the nfl and you think about that that's with patrick mahomes and the chiefs on the schedule twice it's the easiest schedule in the afc west now you do have to certainly monitor and factor in travel they they travel the second most miles in the nfl but i think when you kind of put a bow tie in all this our database goes back 31 years and teams with a minus 15 or greater turnover differential, they improve on average of roughly two and a half wins the following season. So I think it's a bounce back year from the Chargers. The problem is, per usual, books are kind of high on the Chargers because I think they anticipate where the pros are going to come in on this team. And that's kind of the only downside from a value perspective. Makes a ton of sense. And uh, you mentioned it. The Chargers, one of those teams year in, year out, you expect more and they rarely live up to those expectations. Let's see if 2020 can be the year that Anthony Lynn finally gets the most out of this team, albeit with a changing philosophy on offense and a very different looking system than what we've grown accustomed to under Phillip Rivers. And Payne, I hope you have your uh, orange slices and your Gatorades ready because we've officially reached the halftime portion of the NFL Preview Podcast with 16 teams fully previewed in their entirety as we wrap up and put a bow on the AFC West. But before we get out of Dodge, I encourage people to follow you on Twitter at Pain Insider. They can follow me there as well at Todd Furman. And of course, the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. Have you seen an investment that caught your eye in the AFC West this season? I can tell you we've been really making sure the value in our futures has far exceeded what they've needed to be in previous years. We've needed a larger edge to get involved this year. And, and, and as it stands, when you look at win totals, you need an, a larger edge to enter that market than you would if you're betting a random game on a Tuesday that pays you out a couple hours after the game because it's what can you do with that capital over five or six months. Now you have the navigation of this offseason where if one game is removed from the schedule, your win total that's sitting pretty could just get refunded. So we've really tried again to navigate this as best we can, but I can tell you the first win total that we have bet 
is the Denver Broncos under eight wins minus $1.30. I'm looking right now, it's pretty split. You're either going to have seven and a half even to go under, or you're going to have eight minus 130 under. That's the latter number that we picked, and you can certainly shop around. It's available both offshore and in the legal jurisdictions. Plenty of eight under minus 130, and that's one we're pretty strong on. The Denver Broncos doing what we do best around here uh, in the Bet the Board headquarters, fading public perception. A team a lot of people believe can take the next step. Let's hope for the sake of Drew Locke and Vic Fangio, it doesn't occur until 2021. Payne, any other uh, nuggets, tidbits, words of wisdom, final thoughts you'd like to share with our loyal listeners before we bid them a fond farewell? No, I, th- I think that's about it. We're going to start cranking these up. You remember, the season starts September 10th. We're going to start rolling these preview podcasts out every four or five days. So make sure you're subscribed on iTunes so you can get them right away because we'll keep firing them with best bets and just be on the lookout for them. Yeah, plenty of great content. I also encourage all of you, our loyal listeners out there who haven't been to the site to check out the articles talking about scheduling spots. Uh, our staff writer has done an outstanding job trying to highlight some of the things you should be looking for as we forecast what the schedule will look like. So make sure you're exploring all those tools at your disposal. For Pain Insider, I'm Todd Furman. I want to thank you all for listening as we wrap up uh, the midway point as far as our preview podcasts are concerned. And come early January with the Denver Broncos failing to meet oddsmakers' expectations, we'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Bet the Board ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondry Plus and Apple Podcasts. But before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondry.com survey.